0: Hello and oh, welcome my faithful and loyal readers and listeners. Welcome to another installment of our daily <coughs> devotional. And again, this one is a special twofer, so if you'll recall from all of our previous installments, it's divided into two different segments got our first of the day segment and then we have our through the bible in one year segment now so this is a twofer so we're going to do <coughs> day one which will be may 17th so the Daily for that so we're going to cover the first of the day for that day and then we are going to cover for that day our through the bible in one year segment and then we're going to move into the of for today, May 18th. So our verse of the day for May 17th was Micah 6, 6 through 8, which says, With what shall I come before the Lord, and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old, Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams? with 10,000 rivers of olive oil shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul, and he has shown you, O mortal, <coughs> excuse me, what is good and what does the Lord require of you, to act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. <coughs> So the question is, how can (coughs) one come before the Lord? So, how are we able to come before the Lord? That's the question that it starts off with. That's the first part. That's verse 6, which says, With what shall I come before the Lord? Bow down before the exalted God. (coughs) So then Micah makes these. Outrageous and landish suggestions, right? So he says, shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with chaos a year old? And that's the first outlandish suggestion. Then he says in verse 7, will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers (coughs) of olive oil. So a river of olive oil will be a whole lot of olive oil. He says, shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body, for the sin of my soul. So you see, we now come to the most outrageous sacrifice. So he says, shall I come before him with burnt offerings? In other words, sacrifice the law required, which would be a calf a year old. Or then shall I go a step further and come before him with a thousand rams? and with 10,000 rivers of olive oil so a whole bunch of olive oil so those are not really all that outrageous but the most outrageous one is the last half of verse 7 which says she I offer from firstborn for my transgression, for my body, for the sin of my soul <coughs> so God elsewhere had condemned the sacrifice of children so we say that in Deuteronomy 10. But King Ahaz did this in Micah's day, we see that in 2nd Kings 16, 20, 16 verses 2-3. through 3. <coughs> So what then is that, <coughs> how then can we come before the Lord? So first and foremost, God wants a relationship with His people. One in which they walk in His ways, and justly in love mercy. So what do mean when we say justice, or act justly? So that not only refers to legal decisions in court, <coughs> but to act rightly, like God. So you find more references to that in, like, a 3, verse 1, verse 8, and verse 9. So this concept of justice includes supporting the needy and the vulnerable in society remember is that such acts do not earn God's salvation they are the appropriate response to it and we see that in Micah 6 verses 4 through 5 right which says I brought you up out of Egypt <coughs> and redeemed you from the land of slavery I sent, <coughs> I sent Moses to lead you also Aaron, Aaron and Miriam my people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, plotted, and what Balaam, son of Beor, answered. Remember your, ju- <coughs> remember your journey, from from Tim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. Right. So, what we see here is that Israel has failed to do these things, and unfortunately for us today, the society that we have chosen to create fails to do these things as well. And the big, important question that we should be asking ourselves is how do we get back to doing these things that God has required of us? Very simply put, the answer to that is very simply this. We must be fair and honest dealings with others. We must show genuine, active compassion and kindness to those in need, and we must show constant gratitude toward God, which means being totally reliant on Him and having an undying respect for His purposes and following His purposes every day. That's how we are supposed to come before the Lord. That is what God requires of us, right? He requires us to act justly, fair and honest with our dealings with others. He requires us to love mercy, which means he must show compassion and kindness to those in not just those that we like. And finally, what does it say? It says, <coughs> and to walk humbly, with your God, which means we have to have a constant attitude. to be constantly grat- We have to have a constant attitude of gratitude toward God, which means being totally rely on Him. And we have to have an undying respect for His purposes and following His purpose every day. And when we do that, right, we'll start to see a change in our society we'll start to see things change, or maybe for the better, maybe not at first. You see, we've got to start by acting justly, and loving mercy, and walking humbly with our God. The days and the Bible readings that go along with that passage are First Samuel 20, uh, <coughs> 1 Samuel 20 and 21, John chapter 9, Psalm 113, verse 1 through 114, verse 8, and Proverbs 15, 15 through 17. So that brings us to the end of the first of the day segment for May 17th. Now we're going to move into the third the Bible in One Year installment for that day, which will be day 137 bought in one year. By the way, if you have missed any of these posts that, a podcast that this is based off of, you can visit upstatechristian.com to read all of them, plus much more. Just a shameless plug for that. <coughs> so for this particular segment, we have moved John chapter 6 finished up on May the 16th and we have now moved to John chapter 7. Right, so what we see here is the atmosphere around Jesus has become increasingly tense. You see at the end of chapter six many of his disciples or his followers had defective. And we'll see that Chapter 7 opens with an account of the unbelief of Jesus' brothers. In other words, we see Jesus' family not believing in him. This is, uh, just, uh, Chapter 7 is also the third account of Jesus during a Jewish festival. Which, by the way, is now the Festival of Tabernacles. And we'll talk about that when we actually get into this chapter just a little bit. So chapter 7 can be divided into three sections. The events preceding the festival and Jesus' secret arrival, which are the first 13 verses. In other words, verses 1 through 13. By the way, what we're going to be covering today. (coughs) The events during the festival, which will be verses 14 through 36. And the events that took place on the final day, which will be verses 37 through 52. So, remember, we're going to be covering the first section today. So, we're going to start in John chapter 7, verse 1, and we're going to go through verse 5 for right now. Right, so it says this, <coughs> after this, Jesus went around in Galilee. He did not want to go about in Judea because the Jewish leaders there were looking for a way to kill him. But when the Jewish Festival of Tabernacles was near, Jesus' brothers said to him, Leave Galilee and go to Judea <coughs> so that your disciples there may see the works you do. No one wants to become a public no one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. Since you are doing these things, show yourself to the world even his brothers did not believe him so remember we said we see Jesus' <coughs> brother's unbelief in this passage in this first section so what has happened here is Jesus has not been to Jerusalem since the healing of the lame man that took place on the Sabbath day that was back in chapters that was back in chapter 5 Yes, that was back in chapter 5. So this has now been a little bit, a little while, right? So Jesus has now gone back to Jerusalem. So he made a third, he made this third trip to Jerusalem for the Festival of Tabernacles. So this festival was one of three Jewish pilgrimage festivals. Um, it took place down here, so the other two being the Festival of Unleavened Bread, <coughs> which includes the Passover, and the Festival of Harvest, also called Weeks, or Pentecost, which occurs after Passover, sometime in, like, spring, early summer, right? It's where we get the ter- term, the day of Pentecost, which was actually a festival. <coughs> so the Festival of Tabernacles took place in the fall, which would be somewhere between September and October, based on our calendar today. Right. So about six months after Passover, in the Festival of Unleavened Bread, and about two months before the Festival of Dedication, which is Hanukkah. Right. So we're seeing, so we see Hanukkah celebrated in December. So we're looking at a spring summer fall and winter so a festival for every season of the year so during the festival of tabernacles the people lived in leafy shelters called tabernacles what a wonderfully marvelous idea anyway the festival comes from the places the the shelters that they built. Sometimes we call the Festival of Boots. That would be another term for it if you read the really, really old translations, like King James. (coughs) So they lived in these shelters or tabernacles throughout the festival. To commemorate God's faithfulness uh, during the wilderness wanderings of the people of Israel. So it was also a time of celebration and gratitude for the harvest. And there were elements that anticipated the blessings of the Messianic age. So what has happened is, happening? so Jesus had not returned. So now that we know about the Festival of Tabernacles, right? We know that Jesus had not been in Jerusalem since he healed the lame man at the pool of Bethesda. So Jesus had not returned before this time because the religious leaders wanted to kill him. Right? So they were planning to kill him. Why were they planning to kill Jesus? For the simple reason that he stepped on their toes. He stepped into their turf. If... Jesus took on their followers, and took away their ability to control what people did and did not do, on particular days, Sabbath day, festivals, etc. whatnot, they would lose power. The plot to kill Jesus was all about the religious leaders keeping the POWER they had. (coughs) You see, his BROTHERS encouraged Jesus to go to to Jerusalem and do miracles to gather more disciples. So many of you are thinking, well, what's wrong with THIS? Okay, so you've got to remember, Jesus' brothers, at this point in time, DO NOT BELIEVE IN HIM Right, so they're basically telling him, Go to Jerusalem and do more miracles so you can get more followers Right, but what they're really saying is Go and make a fool of yourself in front of all these people in Jerusalem So that we can then disown you And not have anything to do with you And maybe if we get lucky These religious leaders will arrest you, and you might end up getting killed. Bear that in mind. Now, Jesus' brother's attitude changed towards them. We know at least one of them did, because he wrote a book of the Bible. He was the leader of the Jerusalem Church, who went by the name of James. He wrote a very inspirational book of the Bible, very inspirational letter that was penned to fellow Christians at that time by the name of James. So, we know that for a fact. So, now we're going to pick up in verse 6, and we're going to go through verse 13, which will take us to the end of this first section of John, chapter 7. So, that says, therefore, Jesus told them my time is not yet here, for you any time will do. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me, because I testify that its works are evil. you go to the festival, I'm not going up to this festival, because my time has not yet truly come. After he has said this, he stayed in Galilee. However, after his brothers had left for the festival, he went also, not publicly, but in secret. Now, at the festival, the Jewish leaders were watching for Jesus and asked, Where is he? Among the crowds, there was widespread whispering about him. Some said he is a good man. Others replied, No, he deceives the people. (coughs) But no one could say anything publicly about him, for fear of the leaders. (laughs) So, what's going on here, right? So, Jesus made it crystal clear here to his brothers that did not believe him, that wanted him to go up to Jerusalem to make disciples at this time, publicly, right, so that he could be arrested and possibly killed at this point in time that while they could go wherever they wanted and wherever they wanted, his schedule was determined by God. Which, by the way, their schedule should have been determined by God also. But, we're not gonna get into that right now. So, what we see here is that the world hated Jesus because he spoke the truth. Right? They hated him because he spoke the truth. They hated him because he said, these laws that the Pharisees are asking you to follow, they're demanding that you follow, about what you can and cannot do on the Sabbath, what constitute work, etc, 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 are man-made rules and regulations, not God-made, God-ordained rules and regulations. They've taken very simple command. We'll work six days, and we'll rest on the Sabbath day, or we'll rest on the seventh day, and they said well here's what rest looks like and here's what work looks like you can do this on the seventh day but you can't do this on the seventh day are well, you following me so far so when jesus spoke the truth they hated him the lord came down and said i'm the one that's going to provide for you we're going to see that later and <coughs> Oh, As we saw that earlier, right, so when Jesus said, I'm the one who's going to provide for you and sustain you, right, they knew in their heads that he was speaking the truth, but their stony, stubborn hearts couldn't grasp that, so they hated him because they didn't want to change their stony, stubborn hearts into tender, responsive hearts. So uh, you're following me so far on that, right? <coughs> so, so Jesus remained in Galilee after his brothers departed for the festival. So the religious leaders that were plotting to kill Jesus were on the lookout for him. Why? Because they wanted to get him. They wanted this crazy man gone. And do away with him. He's he's trying to steal our power, he's trying to steal our authority. He's telling these people we're telling lies. We ain't the one telling lies. We're not the one who's a man claiming he's gone. We're not the one that is doing all this strange, weird, crazy stuff. We're the normal, sane people who've been in power for years, and years, and years, and years, and years. What we're doing is normal. What we're doing is, right? What he's doing is wrong, because it's different than what we told you. Even though what he's doing and he's saying is more in align with what God said, because guess what? He's God. Right? So, So, because of this, Jesus did not go publicly to the festival, but he did go later, privately. And then what we see is that the crowds were dividing their opinion of of Jesus. Right? So, they were dividing their opinion. Some thought that he was a good man. That he didn't deserve to have people plotting to kill him. He's done nothing to earn that. He's done nothing to deserve that. But you see there was also others who said no 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 He knows everything he's getting because he's deceiving the people a mere man cannot claim to be equal to God That's impossible That's the... That's their... stoning stubborn heart Talking Cause if their head answered that They would have said hold on Let's look back To what happened to those people Back in the first five books back in Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers, particularly Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers, who claimed they were God, who claimed something that that, that was not true, what happened to them? Bad, bad things happened to them, not not within days or weeks, but almost instantaneously, bad things happened to them. Yet nothing has happened to this man who has claimed that he is God. So their heads knew what he was saying was true, but it was their stony, stubborn hearts that refused to believe it. But you see, what, what, what the big thing here is that the fear of their religious leaders kept these people from speaking openly about Jesus. Even though half or maybe more believed in him and half, in the other part, where there was half or less than half, don't know, didn't believe in him, nobody wanted to talk about it, nobody wanted to speak openly about it, cause they knew if they spoke openly about it, whether they agreed with the religious leaders, or whether they disagreed with the religious leaders, and there was the potential for bad things to happen. And we will pick up, from there, when we see Jesus' public entrance into the festival, when we move into or Through the Bible in One Year segment for May the 18th. So, in order to do that, here's what you gotta read. So, you gotta read 1 Samuel 22 through 23, John chapter 10, 1 through 21, Psalm 115 118 and Proverbs 15 18 through 19 Now that we have finished our daily devotional for May 17th it's time to move into our daily devotional for May 18th right so for that remember we sp- remember like we always do it's split into two different segments you got our first of the day segment and you gotta through the Bible in one year segment. So the verse for May the eighteenth, comes from Second Corinthians chapter seven, verse ten, <coughs> which says godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. So what we see here is that Paul identifies two different kinds of sorrow. So the first one, the first sorrow is identified as there is a genuine sorrow for offenses against God that leads to repentance. So what is this concept of repentance? So repentance is a change of heart that causes one to turn from sin and to submit to God. So in other words, repentance is not just, say, me a compa, right? It's my fault. I'm sorry. No, 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 no. Repentance is more than just saying I'm sorry and asking for forgiveness. Repentance is turning around, turning around from what you were doing before, and going in the opposite direction. So when we talk about repentance spiritually, what we're saying is that you go from not following God, you go from not having godly sorrow, you go from not feeling any remorse about your sin, you go from not believing what God says, to turning around and believing what God says, you go from not having any godly remorse about what you did, not because of the consequences, but because you have felt the tongue of the Holy Spirit that says... Once you did what was wrong... And now that I have turned towards God... And away from not following God... I now need to not feel sorry for doing this just so I can get out of the consequences... Right? <coughs> But now I can feel sorry for what I have done Because it was the wrong thing to do And it displeased God So this type of sorrow that we're talking about here Leads to spiritual salvation And a renewed relationship with God So for Paul, turning from sin and showing faith in Christ or human responsibilities in salvation. So that's the first one. You gotta have a genuine sorrow for offenses against God that leads to repentance. So the second one is an in contrast one, right? So it's it. (coughs) So what we need to see in this one is that in contrast, those who refuse to submit and turn from their own wings often become sorry only for the consequences of their sin. They're not sorry for committing the sin. They're not sorry for displeasing God. They're sorry for having been caught doing it and for being punished for doing it. So they feel sorrow in an attempt to get out of the consequences of the sin they have committed. You follow me so far. So, what this insincere sorrow results in, is a hardened heart that resists the Holy spirit, and in the end leads to eternal death and judgment. So, what am I talking about there when I say this, a hardened, a hardened heart? So, for that, we're gonna go over to the book of Ezekiel. right, so there's a particular verse in the writings of the prophet Ezekiel. That is very, very clear on what we are talking about here, right? On this hardening of the heart that resists the Holy Spirit, and in the end leads to eternal death. So, starting in Ezekiel, so we're going to do this, Ezekiel chapter 36, starting at verse 25. And it says, I will sprinkle you clean, clean water on you, and you'll be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. (coughs) That's verse 25. So now we're going to go to verse 26. Which says, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. So how do you get rid of... That heart of stone, that stony, stubborn heart. And how do you get the heart of flesh? Right, so God says he will take out your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. But the way that you get that heart of flesh and you get rid of that heart of stone is through genuine sorrow that leads to repentance. That's how you get. That's how you go from having a stony, stubborn heart. To having a. T- and responsive heart is to genuine sorrow and that is what paul is teaching here and that is what you have to get and so the bible readings for may the 18th are first samuel 22 through 23 john chapter 10 verses 1 through 21 psalm 115 1 through 18 in Proverbs 15, 18 through 19. So, now that we have concluded our verse of the day segment for maybe 18th, it is now time to move into our Through the Bible in One Near segment, which is <coughs> Day 138. So if you recall, yesterday we start so when on May seventeenth we started John chapter seven, and we saw the unbelief of Jesus' brothers and what the crowds at the Festival of Tabernacles thought of Jesus. We also saw that Jesus went to this festival in sacred at first. And now today we're going to see how he decides to reveal himself at this festival, which is the second of the three sections that John chapter 7 is divided into. And so this section goes from John chapter 7, verse 14, through John chapter 7, verse 36. So starting in verse 14 and going through verse 19, for right now, here's what it says. Not until halfway through the festival did Jesus go up to the temple courts and begin to teach. The Jews were amazed and asked, How did this man get such learning without having been taught? Jesus answered, My teaching is not my own. It comes from the one who sent me. Anyone who chooses to do the will of God will find out whether my teaching comes from God, whether I speak on my own. Whoever speaks on their own does so to gain personal glory. But he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is a man of truth. There is nothing false about him. Has not Moses given you the law, yet not one of you keeps the law? Why are you trying to kill me? Hmm... Hmm, so at the midpoint of the festival, which is where we are at now, so we're at the midpoint of the Festival of Tabernacles. So it's halfway over with, and Jesus has decided now, I can't stay in the shadows no longer. I gotta come out in the open and give these people what they are looking for. Give these people what they are desiring, what they are longing for. So at the midpoint of the festival, Jesus goes to the temple courts, and he begins to teach. So, what, what we see? What do we see? here, Right. So it says. So now we're there. It says, in verse 15, the Jews were amazed and asked, "How did this man get such learning without having been taught?" So, what we see here is that the people in the temple courts instantly recognized the authoritative nature of Jesus' teaching despite the fact that he didn't have any formal rabbinic training. Jesus didn't go to seminary, Jesus didn't go to Bible college, Jesus didn't do any of that. He didn't need to do any of that. Why didn't he even do any of that? Because he was getting the answers directly from God. Because, he was God. See where I'm going with this? See, the rabbis need to have some schooling to do this. Because they weren't God. They could have had a direct line to God, but they chose to not have a direct line to God. (coughs) So his teachings, so this is what we're saying. Jesus' teaching was authoritative because it came from God. And the key to understanding Jesus' teaching is obedience to God. So that's what we see in verses 16 through 18, or excuse me, verse 19, which says, uh, Jesus answered, My teaching is not my own. It comes from the one who sent me. Anyone who chooses to do the will of God will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. Right? So that's that's what we're seeing here, right? And so then we're gonna pick up in verse 18, which says, whoever speaks on their own does so to gain personal glory. But he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is a man of truth. There's nothing FALSE about him. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet not one of you keeps the law. Why are you trying to kill me? Right? So, what we see here is that Jesus came not to seek glory for himself, but to give glory to God the Father. And his opponents revealed their lack of obedience to the law by their desire who killed him by their desire to kill him. So now we're gonna pick up in verse twenty and go through verse twenty four. So here's what that says. It says, You are demon possessed. The crowd answered, <coughs> Who is trying to kill you? Jesus said to them, I did one miracle one miracle, and you were all amazed, yet because Moses gave you circumcision, though actually it did not come from Moses, but from the patriarchs, you circumcised a boy on the Sabbath. Now, if a boy can be circumcised on the Sabbath so the law of Moses may not be broken, why are you angry with me for healing a man's whole body on the Sabbath? Stop judging by mere appearances, but instead judge. ...correctly. <coughs> so what we can see here is that there were some in the crowd <coughs> who were pilgrims, and who were unaware of this plot to kill Jesus. And we see here that some in the crowd suggested he was demon-possessed. Forgetting, or perhaps not, or perhaps choosing, to not remember, Whichever way you want to look at it. Someone demon possessed can't drive out demons. Someone who's demon possessed cannot heal someone, because a demon possessed person only wants to destroy others, does not want to heal others, does not want to help others. So they forgot about that. So what we see here is that Jesus does not respond to this Wacky accusation, but he points to the hypocrisy of the Jewish people, of the Jewish religious leaders. He alluded to the healing that took place by the Pool of Bethsaida on his previous visit to Jerusalem. He, refer, he alluded to and he referred to the fact that they got angry with him because he healed this man on the Sabbath day and told this man to pick up his mat and walk and go home on the Sabbath day. And then he goes on to say this after he said that, right? <coughs> he said, <coughs> so here's what he said starting in verse 22, Yeah, because Moses gave you circumcision, Though actually did not come from Moses, but from the patriarchs, you circumcise a boy on the Sabbath. Now, if a boy can be circumcised on the Sabbath, so that the law of Moses may not be broken, why are you angry with me for healing a man's whole body on the Sabbath? Stop judging by mere appearance, but instead judge correctly. So, Jesus' argument here. And this is a very crucial argument to get, what do you saying that since circumcision was permitted under the law. So the law of Moses may be fulfilled, the law God gave to Moses might be fulfilled, right? Why shouldn't an entire person be healed on the Sabbath day? That was the question that Jesus was asking the religious leaders. And if you notice, they don't answer. Why don't they answer? Because they were judging by mere appearances, but instead of judging correctly. So they wanted to appear to be obeying the law of Moses, be obeying the letter of the law of Moses, but not obeying the spirit of the law of Moses, which was designed to connect the people to God. And not to be used as a bludgeon to get people to do whatever they wanted them to do. (coughs) So now we're going to pick up in verse 25 and go through verse 31. So here's what that says (coughs) it says, at that point. Some of the people of Jerusalem begin to ask, Isn't this the man they are trying to kill? Here he is speaking publicly, and they are not saying a word to him. Have the authorities really concluded that he is the Messiah? But we know where this man is from. When the Messiah comes, no one will know where he is from. Then Jesus, still teaching in the temple courts, cried out, Yes, you know me, and you know where I am from. I am not here on my own authority, but he who sent me is true. You do not know him, but I know him because I am from him, and he sent me. At this they tried to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him, because his hour had not yet come. Still, many in the crowd believed him. They said when the Messiah comes, he will perform more signs. Uh, They said when the Messiah comes, will he perform more signs than this man? So, what we see here is that some in the crowd were wondering how Jesus could get away with speaking publicly like this, knowing that there was a plot to kill him. So, they wondered if it were possible that uh, the religious leadership had FINALLY decided to come over to THEIR side of the argument that Jesus is the Messiah. But we can also seen that there were others from that and that Jesus the Messiah, since they knew where he was from. In other words, they're saying, Hey, look, we know this man. We know his mama. We know the man that raised him. We know his brothers, we know his sisters, we know his entire family. And the Messiah comes, we won't know where the Messiah comes from. We know where this man comes from. We know he's the son of a carpenter. Or at least the carpenter raised him. We don't really know who his daddy, true daddy was. Because Mary says that he was... ...conceived by the Holy Spirit, but we don't know if that's true or not. So the irony here is that they only THOUGHT they knew where Jesus was from. Because Jesus came from the Father. He didn't come from Galilee. He didn't come from Joseph. No, 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 Jesus came from the Father. So see, they thought they knew where he was from. They thought they understood who he was, but they had no idea who he really was. So while they confidently asserted they knew his origins, Jesus stated plainly that they did not know God. So what are we talking about there, right? (coughs) So this is where it says, (coughs) starting on verse 28, where it says, Then Jesus, still teaching in the temple courts, cried out, Yes, you know me, and you know where I am from. I am not here on my own authority, but he who sent me is true. You do not know him, but I know him because I am from him, and he sent me. Right? So once again, the response to Jesus varied, just like it did at the end of chapter 6. So, what we see is that some people were so angry, they tried to seize Jesus. So, why'd they want to seize him? They wanted to seize him, to arrest him, and probably kill him. And we see that others believed in him because of his signs, which is what we see in verse 30 and 31. So, it says, At this they tried to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him, because his hour had not yet come. Still many in the crowd believed him. They said, when the Messiah comes, we'll perform more signs than this man. But they're saying there's, Jesus did all... Jesus has done all this stuff. Just based on the stuff he's done. He's gotta be the Messiah. But we're gonna now go into this last section, this... This last four-first section, starting in verse 32 and taking it through 36 which says the pharisees heard the crowd whispering such things about him then the chief priest and the pharisees sent temple guards to arrest him jesus said i am with you only for only a short time and then i'm going to the one who sent me you will look for me but you will not find me and where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we cannot find him? Will he go where our people live scattered among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What did he mean when he said, You will look for me, but you will not find me? And where I am, you cannot come. So, what we finally see here is that the religious leadership felt the necessity to act. They sent in the temple guards to arrest Jesus. And what we see here is that John builds some suspense into this narrative that he's telling us by noting that the temple guards were dispatched, but they are not mentioned again until they return. ...empty-handed. Until they return empty-handed. So, we don't see that here, but we'll see that later, right? So, you see, the temple guards return empty-handed, which means the temple guards came to believe... ...that Jesus was the Messiah. So, imagine and picture this. The religious leaders are so mad and upset at Jesus, they finally had enough. They're gonna send their guards in to shut this man up. Right? They're gonna send these men, they're gonna send some guards in to shut this man up who's been telling him, you don't, uh. Yes, you know me, you know where I am from. I am not here by own authority. This man has been saying these things, right? that you know me and you know where i'm from but you don't really actually know me because you don't know the one who sent me so they sent these guards in to shut him up right? so what we actually see here after that is that we don't actually see Jesus' interaction with the guards right? what we see instead is Jesus' interaction with the crowd because it says so it says in starting of verse 33, I am with you only, Jesus said, I am with you only for a short time. And then I'm going to the one who sent me. You will for me, but you will not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. So the Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go if we can't find him? Will he go where people live, scattered among the Greeks, and teach the Greeks? What did he mean when he said, you will look for me, but you will not find me, and where I am, you come. So what they misunderstood was they misunderstood Jesus' comments about returning to the Father. So they thought he was going to the Greek-speaking Jewish people who were scattered abroad they were scattered all over the mediterranean world at this point in time they didn't understand that jesus was saying i'm going to return to the father and if you don't believe me if you don't believe that i am who i say i am if you don't believe everything i have done has proof to you who i say i am then you can't come with me because the only way to come with me, is through belief in me, and belief in the one who sent me. So see, that's what Jesus was saying, and so we're going to pick up from there tomorrow, and we're going to go through the end of John chapter 7, which is, by the way, the last section of John chapter 7, which is where we see things really begin to heat up. The reason why this is taking so long for this particular section is that this is the meat of John's Gospel. This is where we're actually seeing who Jesus is not just who the disciples say that he is, but we're seeing Jesus himself show who he is. We're seeing Jesus himself show us what it means to be his followers. And so in order for you to be able to understand what's going on tomorrow, you need to read First Samuel 24 through 25, John chapter 10, 22, verses 22 through 42, Psalm 116 verses 1 through 19 and Proverbs chapter 15 verses 20 through 21